Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Since it first started tumbling into Ireland through the old pirate coves of West Cork and in the stomachs of drug mules coming from Miami, cocaine has become the drug of our nation. It has swept in like a blizzard, dusting every corner of every small town. And so swift and total has its spread been that the Irish are now some of the biggest users in the world. But to unravel how a small island like ours on the edge of Europe ended up such a big player in the major cocaine leagues, we must follow the white supply lines back to the beginning. We must follow the routes it has taken as it travels across the globe. And most importantly, we need to follow the cowboys who put us on the map. So join me, Nicola Talent, for my new live show, Cocaine Cowboys, the story of Ireland's love affair with Colombia's biggest export. Limited tickets now available for February 10th at the Lime Tree Theatre in Limerick, February 15th in Cork's Everyman and at Dublin's Three Olympia on Sunday, February 18th. Tickets available at venues are on mcd.ie. I walked back in the gate, down this lovely garden path, past a guy who was gardening over to my right-hand side, knocked on the door, no answer, knocked again, knocked again, and the next thing I heard and almost felt a breath on my neck, and I turned around and the gardener, in a sort of a woolen iron sweater, looking really rough, was Ian Bailey. I nearly jumped out of my skin. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. The death of Ian Bailey brings to an end his role as a celebrity suspect in the tragic murder of Sophie Toscan Duplantier. Convicted in a French court of her brutal killing, yet still an innocent man under Irish law, the life and death of Bailey has been as complex as the murder inquiry that put the West Cork village of Skull on the international map. Today, Niall Donald asks me about my own interactions with Bailey over the years, about his creepy personality, and about a moment of high drama involving the six foot six suspect and a flock of angry geese. This is Crime World, 
a podcast from sundayworld.com. How come it is that even when you interview me, I still have to do the goddamn intro? Well, I suppose it's because I'm your boss, Nicola, and you have to do what you're told. <laughs> what about that? Or is it because you sound as if someone has a gun to your head it's and you're of, reading an intro? Well, a practicing competence, is it? The more, the more. But you know, the intro is a little bit like, which to explain to anybody listening, yeah. is done after we make the yeah. podcast. Yeah. Um, and it's sort of the, the sort of the four lines at the beginning of it to explain what they're going to hear. Um, the school lunches. Yeah. I only ever had two school lunches to right. make, which you'd swear I had 86. Exactly. It was my most dreaded job of the entire day. Exactly. I'd start thinking about it at about five o'clock. Yeah. And because I would sort of drag myself through the fridge and all the rest of it. Because Claude will tell you, like, if you're oh. not here and I have to do it, it could take me up to two hours to do the intro. To do the intro. See, that's a skill I didn't even realize I had yeah. properly. Yeah. What? Winging, winging things totally. Winging things in four, <laughs> in four sentences. Yeah. But anyway, I'll have done the intro by the time you hear this. But just to say that in the ordinary course of events, it should have been him, but yeah. he's incompetent. So yes. Well, there you go. And, and embracing it. Yes. Yeah. So anyway, go so ask me the questions. My podcast today yeah. is going to be about Ian Bailey. Yeah. Um, and obviously, um, the reason I, I talked to Ian Bailey a few times, and the reason I talked to him is because he used to phone up uh, the Sunday World regularly on a on a Saturday afternoon, which is unusual because a lot of the week we spend our time trying to chase down suspects and crimes. Very rarely do they continue to call in. And he used to call in and say, can I speak to Miss Nicola Talent, please? You see, I was going to say that I actually thought you were going to say that he used to ring in because I wasn't answering yeah. my phone to him because right. he did torment me quite a bit. Yeah. So, I mean, but it is unusual, isn't it? People, oh, yeah. see, most people obviously that are in the public eye in relation to criminality, like generally they don't like it. Okay, now there are some people, gangland criminals who might like the odd picture of themselves and some of their notorious actions. But most of those people that are suspects, and which is what he was and yeah. what he remained up until the day he died, they don't embrace the media and it's very rare that they do. But Ian Bailey... Like he did, didn't he? Yeah, because you see, he saw himself as one of us. Yeah. He was a journalist first and foremost in his own mind. Um, and embrace the media, he did. I mean, he tried in a way to be charming to the media, I think, yeah. in order to be able to set his own narrative against these allegations against him, against the fact that he was and remains the one and only suspect in the murder of Sophie Toscan de Plantier. Yeah. That's dark fact, lived with him all his life. But I think he thought as one of us, yeah. he was going to be able to charm his way in with everybody and that you were going to tell the story the way he wanted it told. Yeah. I don't know how many times I had to listen to him, which is probably why I used to avoid answering him, to these sort of theories he had yeah. in relation to who killed Sophie Toscan de Plantier, including one theory that she was killed by a horse. Right. Did you ever hear that one? No, I never, I mean, I never heard it. Um, you know, he obviously, uh, like he he obviously persisted with all of this stuff. Mm. Now there's he been... He couldn't understand why you didn't write us then. Yeah. He'd get a bit angsty, a bit angry with you. Yeah. He'd, I mean, the horse thing was something, oh, let me just see if I can put myself back into that mind of his. It was something about she'd gone out in the middle of the night, heard something, walked down that lonely driveway, if you'd call it, it was a laneway, rocky laneway, got to the gate, opened the gate, 
And this horse sprung out of nowhere and hit her in the head full on with a hoof. Yeah. And ran off or yeah. something. This um, was this theory. And why I mean, weren't the Gardaí pursuing this? I mean, I'd say probably because there was no hoof print no. for stars, you know? I mean, obviously, the, the only conversations I had with him were, were relatively brief and they was always focused on the guards as well. Mm-hmm. He had, like, he obviously, uh, he had a, you know, a obviously really long, complex legal cases against him and he he had it in for the guards. I mean, his argument clearly is they had it in for him, um, but... There's both sides to that. Yeah, there, yeah. there was. I mean, some of the stuff that came out in relation to that investigation and what went on with Marie Farrell, etc., was just quite. Yeah, it's like something off the stage. Yeah, I mean, it was. It's you know, you have to look at it, and I think it was um, Sophie's uh, uncle this week who came out and said, you know, who was super critical of the guards, while clearly suggesting that Ian Bailey uh, was a justified suspect and basically saying the family can never fully get satisfaction, not solely because of the actions of Sophie's killers, but also because of the actions of the guardie who made it effectively an unsolvable case. And I don't, I don't think that's really an arguable thing to say, you know, that they, they obviously he, Ian Bailey, was convicted in in France in his in absentia, but you know the the Garda investigation became a huge part of the story. Like we actually had a look back there at the timeline of the yeah. events, and there's just so many of them, and it became such a complicated story. Mm-hmm. I mean, when did you first begin to write about it? So she was murdered in December of 1996. Yeah, that was a very significant year. Yeah. Um. Outside of that, Veronica Guerin had been murdered. Jerry McCabe had been murdered. There was a growing threat of organised crime. Gangland was rising. It was kind of that, you know, the, the, the Irish economy was beginning to take a turn. There was more employment. So all of that was going on in the background. And there was calls during that year to sort of upgrade the response system to murders. Yeah. Um, the state pathologist John Harbison had called for extra resources. Um, he seemed to be the only one responding to murders in his team, as in being the sort of the guy on the ground. I presume he didn't have assistant assistance yeah. or something like something along those lines. There were certainly calls for upgrades to the the forensic labs and all this. So that was going on in the background. Twenty third of December, she was murdered, and. It's a very rural community. Now, I've been down a number of times to that place in Skull and I've stood on that mountain and wondered what the hell happened there that night. Yeah. And, you know, the idea that somebody came in from the outside, that this was a random attack, this has been gone through by loads of people. It's just too hard to believe. It was very, very isolated. Beautiful part. I mean, of the it is. It is probably one of the most spectacular parts of Ireland. Like, and it's it's a, you know, it's been Ian Bailey has been written about and podcasted about so many times, but not to, to go back into every little bit of detail, but th- those types of murders where a woman is is brutally beaten to death by with, a stranger, by a stranger, an anonymous stranger. Yeah. It was just. It's it's really uncommon, it is. and for something like that to happen in in such a rural part of of Ireland with no immediate motive. I mean, it wasn't as if it was the mo- the normal motive in these things are, you know, a breakdown of a relationship or something like that. So it it, it was very uncommon, and you know, it 
it was what was it around Christmas time? Well, it was the twenty third of December, yeah. which was the first cause of the problem in the yeah. whole investigation. To be honest with you, because. Um, so Sophie was due to travel back to France and hadn't. Her body was discovered by a neighbour on the laneway. So the house sat atop a hill with two other sort of little residences there that were neighbours, basically. I could never understand why she ran into the darkness of that laneway going down into the nothingness because it was in the middle of the night yeah. or the darker night rather than go to what was much nearer, which were the neighbours' houses for help. But I suppose maybe she didn't know whether they were in or not. It just seems the obvious human reaction would have been to go to a neighbour's house. But we'll never know, I suppose, really, what, what was going through her mind. But so the 23rd of December and um, the body was found and the response system was too was slow. Yeah, It was local police down there who probably weren't used to um, the likes of this. As you said, nationwide, we weren't used to this kind of a murder um, because of the proximity to Christmas, it took a number of days for the state pathologist to get down yeah. to the area. And the body had lain on the ground, covered, but um, there was opportunities missed because of the delay. Yeah, and um, obviously then you're talking about in the mid-90s, like in the next period of time, the next decade, you'd have huge advances in policing techniques with new, with, yeah. with DNA, all of that crime scene stuff. Like that was very much more rudimentary at this stage. And probably the, the specialization wasn't there in that rural part of Ireland, obviously. Yeah, look, that's all been picked over and the likes yeah. of the law, the, the, you know, the missing evidence and all this, that was all quite normal. If you look back yeah. at any unsolved cases from that time, the problems that exist in the in the investigation into Sophie Tosca and the Plantier's murder exist in a lot of them. A team from Dublin were rounded up with Gardaí and they went down to the local area. Um, that always caused problems as well. Yeah. It was like the big boys were coming in and the locals weren't good enough to solve these crimes. Um, again, it was Christmas time. It was a bit of a transient population down there. I think they were slow to start gathering the evidence. Um, and basically, you know, in a lot of cases, when we hear about a murder, even now when there's more yeah. developed policing techniques, you kind of know when it goes past a week, two weeks, do they have us? Are they going to? Yeah. Do they have anybody? They don't have, like, you know, if somebody gets arrested in a, in a 24 hours, it means they have some sort of really strong piece of evidence to put to that person because yeah. they can't just arrest them. He, he looks he looks sketchy. Let's just bring him in. They have to have, the arresting officers have to have something to put to him. Like you were mm -hmm. seen there by a witness, you, you know, there's CCTV. So they obviously didn't have that, that straight thing. However, at the time, um, the newspapers were getting plenty of information through a local freelance reporter, which we still get if there's, say, stringers, there's, we call them. Stringers, and say, there's, you know, say, if you pick, say, Donegal or somewhere, there's there's a murder, there'd be a freelance reporter who works solely in the area, just covers Donegal, and they'll tend, and people will see it if they pick up the newspapers, they'll send copy to each of the titles, really. Um, and there's people who have special specialities in that particular mostly county by county basis. Mm -hmm. um, so Ian Bailey was that person, obviously. He was, and I'd say he was like, again, the time of year, you're looking at Ian Bailey as a freelance reporter based down in that part of the country where not massively, you know, huge amounts yeah. of national stories kind of happen. I would think the time of year uh, 
made that job quite lucrative then because, of course, the, on the national papers, they would have been sending from Dublin largely. Um, people were off. It was Christmas time. It was coming in up to the new year after that. And I would imagine... Ian Bailey had his pick of the stories for a long time for the Nationals. Yeah, and it would have been front page news, obviously, that type of killing and it, they, people would have been hungry for yeah. for copy. However, quickly... Yeah, I was going to say the next thing I remember of the story was that there was a crew of journalists slightly older than me, hmm. uh, one John Kearns, who yeah. was the, the mirror stringer here in Ireland and always on the road and on stories, Senan Maloney, yeah, um, who works for the Indo, of our sister, parish, yeah. yeah, and possibly Paddy Clancy of yeah. the Sun. Yeah, um, the next thing I remember was the three of them had done a sit-down interview with Ian Bailey, and Ian Bailey had told them, yeah, that he was the chief suspect. Yeah, so from a legal point of view, um, the media can't name a chief suspect really, no, unless I mean, a number of things happen. Well, of course, you see the the. You know, if you if you name him as somebody as a chief suspect, you know that's your responsibility because you put them in the public. However, if you if you're a suspect in a murder and you do an interview saying I'm a chief suspect, uh, a newspaper is entitled to carry what you say. Yes. Um. You know. So and, they then are referred to forevermore until anything occurs as the self-professed yeah. chief suspect. I think the same happened with John Gilligan. Yeah. When he eventually did an interview with Liz Allen. Yeah. Um. You know, if you look back over the the copy when, you know, this gang boss is yeah. on the run and the Guardi are focusing on a gang boss for the murder of Veronica Gear, all of a sudden John Gilligan is named not because just he's arrested in the UK and yeah. they're seeking his extradition on uh, murder charges. But in advance of that, he'd done an interview with, with Liz Allen and he had said to her, I know I'm the chief suspect. Yeah. So... Yeah, it's just a legal technical issue that yeah. we deal with in the media. But this is what happened. So that was the next thing I was very aware of, you know, that this local stringer, local journalist was the chief suspect. And there was photographs of him and he was very distinguished looking. Yeah. I mean, he was like a country gent and he always would have turned ahead, Bailey. Yeah, big, tall. Big, tall. Sort yeah. of powerful looking man. Exactly. So by... What must have been 97, I think, or thereabouts, you know, he was very much central to the investigation. The focus was on him. He'd self-professed chief suspect. And the information coming from there was that the Gardaí were certainly looking at him. There'd been some statement that a man had been seen washing boots in a stream. Yeah. That man was believed to be Ian Bailey, that he had an alibi for the night from his partner, that he had basically, they'd been out, they'd come in. They'd gone to bed and he may have got up to to, to write, which was something he did, um, but that he was there in the morning when she woke up. Yeah. But that it was kind of more and more focused on Ian Bailey. And she was his partner at the time. Jules Thomas was his name. So I got uh, a request from my then editor that there had been some sort of a rumor or something that Bailey was going to marry Jules Thomas. Yeah. Which meant that I was told at the time, whether it's still the case or whether it was true or not, if you were married, hmm. you didn't have to give evidence against I don't, your spouse. I, which I don't think that, that is... Was that a, ever true? Well, that's a law in, in the US. Right. I mean, that is, and it's been the source of a couple of uh, a couple of thriller films. Yeah. But well, I don't think... That's where that was yeah, from, yeah, yeah. I don't think that's true that in Ireland, That was my mission, actually, to go but, down yeah. and to try and find out. Yeah. Was he getting married? Had he got married? And therefore you know, was she not going to be forced to give any evidence in yeah. court should a court case arise? So I went down to Skull 
and met up with a local photographer, established, I'm going to try and remember this as clearly as I can, established where the house was. I was going to have to approach him and see what he'd do, an interview. Um, and obviously these journalists had done an interview before with him. I was kind of told, look, he's a bit odd, but, you know, yeah, you needn't be worried, worried about him. Yeah. So I got to their house and opened the gates, went up the driveway through the most beautiful garden, beautiful little stream in it and everything. Got up to the house, knocked on the door and with as I knocked, the door flung open and there was Jules Thomas and him. Huge. I think he was six foot five. Yeah. He felt about six foot eight to me that yeah. day. And he was wearing a kind of a, a wax coat with a wax hat. He was done up in kind of country boots. He was like very distinguished. And yeah. She was a very good looking woman at his side. And they were going out the door as I was coming in and we all, kind of all got a fright. Yeah. So I babbled about who I was and what I was doing and that I was, you know, is there any chance I could have an interview? And oh, they were going out shopping or something. And I said to them, I would book into the local hotel and I'd stay and I'd facilitate yeah. him whenever yeah. Yeah. the thing. So we made an arrangement that I was to go off and do that and come back and say three hours. Yeah. So off I went, booked into the local hotel, thought, wow, this would be good, get an interview, find out if they got married, you know. Um, we went back to the house and I walked back in the gate down this lovely garden path um, past a guy who was gardening in over to my right hand side, knocked on the door, no answer, knocked again, knocked again. And uh, the next thing I heard and almost felt a breath mm. on my neck and I turned around and the gardener yeah. in a sort of a woolen Aran sweater and looking really rough yeah. was Ian Bailey. Right. I nearly jumped out of my skin. It was like as if he was a chameleon. Yeah. I didn't even recognize him right. from three hours before this. Right. He'd obviously gone out to the shop and come back changed to do into his garden yeah. here. Everything about him was different. The look on his face was different. Yeah. That feeling about him was different. And with that a sort of a flock of geese came running around the corner, <laughs> okay. right? Rent into the, through the middle of us. And I am terrified of geese. Yeah, yeah. Right. Have you ever had any encounter I have, with I've never vicious no, little fuckers? No, no, yeah. So I took off across the garden and jumping <laughs> over the... <laughs> fleeing from the geese? Fleeing from the geese. As he sort of herded the geese back, yeah. it was very chaotic scenes. The photographer <laughs> waiting for me at the gate as I arrived, white-faced, didn't know, was it Ian Bailey? Being chased by, yeah. Yeah. Um, but we all ended up having a bit of a, a giggle about it after, to be honest with you. But that was my first encounter with him. Yeah. And he did a bit of an interview and I think he said he wasn't getting married or they weren't yeah. getting married or something like that. So it was a bit of a damn squib. But he was, you know, you see, you're approaching these people. Yeah. And of course, I was only in my 20s. Yeah. So um, probably slightly dramatic and yeah. hysterical and everything. And yeah. like, oh my God, I'm going to talk yeah. to a murderer. Yeah. Um, so you have a kind of a sort of a, maybe a little, you're a little yeah. bit nervous anyway. So, um, but the story in itself was almost enough to make yeah. a story in a newspaper. You know, I'm sure there was fabulous photographs of us all and the geese and Ian Bailey and me. But um, that was my first encounter of him. And he kept in touch from then on. And I think like sometimes people who've worked in the media, they can be very tricky to deal with because they think, they know better than they, they do, do. Yeah. Um, because somebody like Ian Bailey would always think he's going to be able to manipulate it into a certain way. And they're nearly always, and you see this in people that have former journalists, yeah. they, they think they can spin it out. But of course, 
the real spin doctors work for, like, you know, politicians or whatever, they understand you can only spin it so far and then it's it's going to get out of your hands anyway, mm-hmm. do you know? But there's people like Ian Bailey who are constantly trying to manipulate the stories in a, a certain such way. such a strange character, yeah. really, to be honest with you. I mean, you wouldn't have felt comfortable in his presence. Mm. You'd always have needed somebody else there. Yeah. Um, he tried to be funny, but yeah. he wasn't. Yeah. He tried to be but, really academic. Yes. And he was constantly looking for you to not understand or be at the same level of yeah. intelligence as yeah. him. He, as you say, manipulative. He was trying to tell you what story to but do. But not brilliantly manipulative. Not brilliantly because... Because, I mean, there are people that are really yeah. good at manipulation and you don't know you're being manipulated. Yeah. But there's other people, they're trying to manipulate you and you go, well, like, you're obviously <laughs> trying yeah, yeah. to... So, there was a bit of that feel off him that he, he, you know, and obviously as well, he always projected himself as this great poet and yes. great thinker and all of that. And of course, you know, I don't uh, profess to be, a, you know, an expert on poetry, but it didn't seem like his poetry made that much of an impact. So he wanted to be a kind of a, an intellectual country gent, bohemian type. Yeah, he definitely did. And I think when that happened in his life there, it defined the rest of his life. Yeah. I'm not sure he had thought it properly through. He had this weird sense of humor, as I say, that he thought yeah. he was being funny. That came up a few times in some statements that other people gave about him, about remarks he'd made. I mean, I think um, one of the editors that had taken copy from him quizzed him at one point about, you know, the fact that you know, where the guardy kind of looking at him and he said something like, oh yes, I murdered her so as I could make I could make a few bob from a story yeah. or something. Which wasn't funny in the context no. of things, but he yeah. thought it was. And then also he did make comments at a party later and that was reported during a libel case that he brought and about, he made comments about suggesting he had killed her, killed Sophie Tuscan de Plantier. And then he described that as being dark humour and yeah. only joking. So there was that. But he was different because it was like as if he was lacking the... Social cues, was it? Social cues, yeah. He was definitely... There was no boundaries with him and he just didn't read the room very well. Yeah. So while he was fully convinced he was functioning on a higher level than anybody else in the room, he was actually doing the opposite because he didn't know when to zip it. Yeah. He didn't know when to stop behaving so weird. Yeah. So dark or, you know, he almost tried to act dark. He sort of like as if he took on this role of this killer sometimes, this yeah. big looming presence in the room. And like he always seemed to wear these very long coats that swung out behind him as he walked and big long limbs on him. And he was a big strong man, like yeah. very, very good with his hands. You've never seen anything like the things he made yeah. down in that home. So that was Jewel Thomas's home and she was an artist herself and had come over from England and bought that split with her partner and the parent, the father of her children. I don't know how they'd met, I think, when he moved over as this bohemian. And, I mean, she was daft in love with him. Yeah. Absolutely. And she was a little bit older than him. Um, And I think, obviously, what came out was she put up with a lot in their relationship during that time. Yes, it wasn't always easy with him. No, because he was obviously... And the, the work he did around sort of woodwork and 
making things, creating things, even like he would take an old Warhol and yeah. make it into something stunning. So, I mean, that's like we described the sort of aspect of his personality that's kind of almost comic and slightly, you know, which obviously kept people engaged in him throughout all the yeah. Netflix series, the other series by Jim Sheridan, all the, the interviews over the years. So that was all the kind of a maybe quirky, but of course there was whatever about the, the, the murder, there was a very much a darker side to Ian Bailey as well that wasn't uh, unusual and charming and mm. eccentric and bohemian because it was, you know, he had been convicted of a brutal assault on 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 his partner, Jules. In fact, he had admitted doing it at least three times, three vicious assaults. And was he convicted of that? He was uh, given a suspended sentence. At one point, yeah. yeah I, he I received, thought there was a couple of complaints made and then statements weren't forthcoming. But. No, he was convicted in 2001. He right. received a three-month suspended sentence at Skibbereen District Court for assaulting Miss Thomas. Yeah. And even before he had come to Ireland, his marriage had broken down. He'd been married to a woman uh, in, in the UK and there'd been, you know, physical assaults during, at that point as mm. well. And, um, you know, the, ascent, the extent of the assaults on Jules Thomas were significant enough that she had been hospitalised, that she'd received severe facial injuries. Um, they weren't, you know, I'm not saying any degree of assault would be okay, but they were particularly vicious. Um, yes, in court, he had admitted it was the third time he had assaulted her. Mm -hmm. And the judge even said, you know, violence on one occasion is unusual. And it's second time, it's very unusual, but three times is exceptional. So that, that, that was, that was there. Mm. Um, his capacity for being a violent person. And you know, Jules Thomas, I have to say for her, she was always very welcoming of you into her home. She's a very gentle person. She's yeah. an artist, beautiful oils and all the rest of it. And I think she was crazy in love with him. And I think nobody had a bad word to say about her. No, nobody I has never ever. heard anybody say a bad word no. about her other than she was this almost tragic sort of a character that was, you know, so committed to him. Yeah. Um, probably there's elements of, look, you're great at uh, mm. labeling yeah. people like myself with my narcissism <laughs> or whatever else you say I have. But yeah. on a serious note, I think that Ian Bailey certainly had a grandiose personality. Oh no, disorder, I think I right? think he would he would qualify as a narcissist. And the people that are have that personality disorder, or or you know, they tend to pick up people will put up with that. Yes. And those people are particularly people that maybe want to save them or rescue yeah. them or help people. Well, that's exactly what I was going to say about her. And I think she probably had that gentleness about her that their relationship was probably all about him. Yeah. Which is why it survived until it didn't, basically, until she eventually pulled away from him. But, um, you know, she never lost touch with her family. Her kids and daughters used to come and her wider friends and everybody just stayed with her. Yeah. And, and nobody, I think a lot of people wanted to see her pull away from him a long time previous. And of course, he was living in her home. This was all, you know, he had sort of moved into this. Now, he had certainly done his bit as regards refurbishment of it. And, and you know, he was a... He was the type of man that would <laughs> would do things about the house, you know. Yeah, w would be would get out and do and 
dig up a, whatever or would fix a thing and all this sort of stuff. So he had um, contributed to the house that way. But I think his contribution to her world was just this bullying, grandiose force within it that, yeah, you know, people on the outside felt sorry for her that she had fallen for him, unfortunately, so hard. And as these these times went on, the Garda investigation, I suppose it's fair to say trundled along would be would mm. be the best description of it. Um, he was arrested twice. Um, file was ultimately, we, as I said, we won't go into all yeah. of this, but a file was ultimately sent to the DPP. Um, I think that was revealed later as part of another f- case that the, the DPP's office was very critical of the Garda investigation yeah. and effectively said... You don't have enough to charge. And I think it's effective because you don't have any evidence. No, it didn't have any evidence and wasn't impressed with it. There was another couple of reviews of it. I think a new file was subsi- submitted in 2003. Um, then there was a big moment where he, Ian Bailey, took against newspapers. Yeah. And uh, basically... Took a libel case out. Which was big somewhere. news at the time. Yeah. People kind of forget about it, I think, yeah. now... But it was big news um, because, uh, and ultimately, he 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 was unsuccessful. Um, that you know, it was you know for various reasons. But a lot of the uh, domestic violence emerged during the, those libel cases, and it was it was it was a lesson, really. I thought that yeah. case for anybody who thought it's easy to go up against the media you know, a grouping, you know, you have to, like every court case, be it a criminal case or be it civil proceedings, be it family law. Yeah. If you're not telling the whole truth. Yeah. You're goosed. Yeah. There's nowhere lonelier than being in the dock of a courtroom and giving evidence. Yeah. And he he struck an unsympathetic figure. I mean, that's the reality um, because although, you know, he'd done interviews himself, um, but his whole past came out um, there was ultimately, there was an appeal and the, the case was settled during the appeal. The newspapers acknowledged that they never intended to suggest that he murdered Miss uh, Tuscan de Plantier, but there was no money of note handed over, let's put it that way. So I suppose we fast forward through, Ian Bailey took actions against the state over the investigation. The next bit was Marie Farrell, yeah. who was a witness at that libel case and she confirmed that she was the one Mm. who gave the witness statement that she saw somebody washing their feet at Kilfada Bridge that night. Yeah. Okay. So her statement that she gave at that libel trial, that she sort of identified herself as being the one behind that, starts to unravel. Yeah. And this phenomenal, complex and incredible, what was it, how he said, goo-boo. Yeah. Grotesque unbelievable, bizarre and unprecedented happened. Yeah. And it turned out that Marie Farrell um, but she claimed she had been sort of basically coerced into making a statement by the guardie. Against Bailey. Yeah, now the guards obviously disputed that and that again had another long and torturous history yeah. where it reappeared in other court cases. They had cases. given her a phone and a few things Yes, like that. and there was other allegations ultimately um, made by other people that they had been told to do this by Gardy. There was, you know, there was there was other people came forward with similar things and... Um, it trucked along, I suppose, and the French began their prosecution of Ian Bailey then uh, during the, the... They began their investigation anyway. Yeah. They began their investigation. They came over here. They sort of made 
They did the same thing the Gardaí had done. Yeah. But Bailey started then suing the state Yes. Here. He, yes. Stood, he sued the Justice Minister, the Guard Commissioner for false imprisonment, conspiracy, assault, battery, all these sort of things, and a yeah. breach of his constitutional rights. Which was and, a huge case, actually, ultimately, when yeah. it came to court. And it was one of those cases that went on for a really, really long time. Each day, a rack up. I don't know what it is, 40, 50,000, for example, in the high court. This went on for, you know, a number of months, as far mm. as I remember, each day racking up those huge bills. Ian Bailey presented lots of stuff, including there, there'd been recordings of phone calls made in, in, in Garda stations routinely, and that all became a feature of that case. But ultimately he lost. And I think the bill was... Uh, I don't know if it was ever the final figure was around, but it amounted to millions. Tens of millions. I'm yeah, sure, I think it yeah. was seven million or something yeah. like that. Okay. Um, so, but I don't even know if that ever. There so was the, ever a final that was two thousand and seven that that high court case was taken. But by twenty ten, the French magistrate judge Patrick Gachon issued a European arrest warrant for Bailey's arrest. Yeah. And this was strange. How is the Irish going to handle it? His solicitor Frank Buttimer. Um, objected to that extradition. There was no way the Irish could yeah. extradite Bailey, given that, I remember speaking to Buttimer about it, his argument was that DPP, the Director of Public yeah. Prosecutions here, had seen everything that the Gardaí had collected about Bailey yeah. and had ruled they didn't have any evidence on yeah. it. So how then could we as a state hand one of our citizens over to France who had sent in their detectives and had found enough evidence to charge him. Yeah, and I so mean, it's complex. And effectively, they were they could they could take certain amounts of evidence, but most of what the French were relying on was what the guards had done previously. So, I mean, he won his case basically. Um, you know, it, it, it's he won his case against the extradition against this extradition, which is you know, but lost is, his civil action against the state in twenty fifteen. Yeah, lending with a huge bill, and the French prosecution, although he wasn't he wasn't extradited, um, they continued with him in absentia, basically. Mm -hmm. um, now it's around this time, around 2014, 2015, that I re-engage with yeah. Bailey. Because we were working at the time with our colleague Donald McIntyre. Yeah. And we were kind of dipping into a few of these cold case murders. Yeah. And one of them that we decided we'd have a look at was the murder of Sophie Toscan de Plantier. And we went down with our cameras and this, that, and the other down to West Cork. Um, we did the usual rounds of the murder site. We examined that whole, we spoke to the neighbours, we spoke to everybody. I'm sure we spoke to people who were sick. Yeah. Speaking about it at this stage, we're nearly 20 years on from her murder. Um, we spoke to a guy who owned a petrol station who said he remembered this sort of rental car coming in and we, we found little threads that we tried to work up. And over the course, of course, I had Bailey's number in my phone. He would sporadically ring me. Yeah. Um, I think I phoned him and we met him for lunch yeah. down in a pub in yeah. Skull. Always a good man to get a free lunch yeah. and a couple of pints. Which he of was, course he did stop drinking oh, for. He had it. stopped drinking for a long time, but he was back drinking, I think at that stage. Yeah. Um, he ordered a few pints with a sandwich and spoke about how good the food was. His personality hadn't changed. Yeah. There was still that sort of sense of being uncomfortable in his presence. Yeah. Um, you know, he was a bit taken with McIntyre. Yeah. 
I think because this was some sort of a celebrity type journalist who was showing an interest in the case. And again, he moved in immediately to give us whatever information, anything we needed, we were to come to him. Um, We ended up actually up at the house again for dinner, perhaps. Mm. And Jules was there. And I think Donal actually bought one of her paintings for his mother. Yeah. Um, The house had again been, you know, beautiful. It was an absolutely beautiful house. The Prairie, I think it was called. And he sat back and entertained and spoke to us and gave us whatever documents we wanted and whatever this, that and the other. I went off to do whatever we were Hmm. down doing in the first place for the the newspaper at the time, I'm sure, were we doing a doc. And Donal obviously took a further interest in the case, kept in touch with Bailey and went on to make a documentary with Jim Sheridan. One of many, though, is which one is the two, which yeah. is well one of two documentaries, yeah. but also, I mean, the the, the podcast the West podcast Cork, West Cork, yeah, which was, I mean, West Cork was probably a groundbreaking podcast, wasn't mm-hmm. it? Not just in Irish terms, but it was one of the first Most big certainly. serial true crime podcasts that made huge, uh, had huge listenership across the world. It was one of the real, you probably know, one of the the kind of the. The, the most high profile ones from this side of the globe, yeah. really. Obviously, Serial had sort of launched podcasts, but we were always a good few years behind yeah. the States. But West Cork was, and the work that went into it, um, you know, funny, the story, um, the thoughts of delving into that story with the tangled mess it yeah. was, did nothing for me. No. I, I couldn't no. have given six months of my life yeah. at that point, having dipped in and out of it to such an extent, the characters involved, the kind of he says, she says, yeah. the all that. Well, it's the lack of a conclusion, is it? No, it was more just all the tangled web of those high court cases, the legal accusations, the yeah. newspapers did this. And there was loads more, sorry, in the background that pro- we probably will never talk about no. that had gone on. And I mean, you could literally do a hundred hours podcast, literally. which we're, we're not going to do, but... So ultimately, there was huge interest, just remained. I mean, we talk about West Cork, like, but it wasn't, and there was Jim Sheridan, very high profile, Jim Sheridan and Donald McIntyre series. Then there was a Netflix series, which was um, really good as well, really high quality, uh, probably produced a a lot of involvement of Sophie Tuscan, the Plantier's family, uh, less from Ian Bailey. Mm -hmm. So very different perspectives. There was a book as well, Murder at Roaring Water Bay by Nick Foster that came out. Yeah. Um, And yeah, there was a renewed interest in it really after. And I think it was as the French sort of having been told they weren't having him. Yeah. Like, Bailey basically couldn't leave this country. Yeah. He could never go to France anyway because he would have been arrested. Or go home. I think he said he had family members die. He couldn't go to... Yeah. That's what he was talking to us about at the time when Mm. we went down about how he was kind of... That was his world now. Yeah. And I suppose the toll this had all had on him and... Yeah. And you always got the sense that the toll it had on him was just to increase his celebrity. Yeah. And ultimately that's what he had wanted. But yeah, there was this renewed interest in the case while all the while the French were moving towards actually trying him in his in absence yeah. in a court of law, which is what they did. And on May 31st, 2019, a French judge, Frédéric Aline, and her two colleagues found him guilty of the murder of Sophie Toscan de Plantier and sentenced him in absentia to 25 years in jail. So then there was another attempt to extradite him. That failed in 2020. Mm -hmm. Um, 
ultimately the guards would reinvestigate or would launch another review in 2022. So, but really after 2020, um, the, the two documentary series came out in 2021. And then for the next three years, the last three years of his life, Ian Bailey started a kind of another, uh, another chapter of his life, which was as a social media star, really, wasn't it? Yes. But before we get to that, I think that, you know, he always wanted his say and he always wanted everything to go the way he wanted it to go. He always wanted to set the narrative. I don't know whether he was happy or not by becoming this celebrity and these Mm. documentaries and stuff. But his life took a downhill spiral in that last few years when the court case in France was happening and when he was being filmed. Yeah. I mean... For a narcissist, having people landing on your door and putting a camera in your face and your every word being hung on and recorded and everything has to be something they dream of, perhaps. Yeah. But for him, the reality of that seemed to take its toll because I think he started really heavily drinking and his relationship started breaking down. Exactly. And, you know, he had been off the drink for a a good long period of time. and we do know that to be the case, and that was a more stable time. But the drinking definitely oh, became yeah, very out of control. You know, at, is this when he, he started ringing the news desk? Because he used to ring me at night full of whiskey. Yes. And if I made the mistake of answering him, I'd have him on for Sola, and I'd be trying. You know the way you're trying to get someone yeah. off the phone. Okay, Ian, I have to, and he'd just keep going, keep going, yeah. keep going, and I'd have to go, and eventually I'd have to sort of go. I'm going to have to hang up on this guy. Yeah, because, you know, if you look back, he physically looked very different in the last yeah. period of time of his life. If he, When he did speak about the domestic violence, a lot of what he said was that he had been an alcoholic and that all of that attacking women had occurred because he was drinking. Yeah. Um, but I, even at the time of his, his death, he had two court cases ongoing, one for drug driving, one for drink driving. He was contesting both. I think one of them had been, he'd been convicted, but he was appealing it. So it caused this total chaos and it had led to the breakdown of the relationship, probably amongst other things. We don't know, I suppose, exactly what caused that. But Jules Tom, Thomas did a series of interviews this week and she was really definitive in saying she was done with him. And mm. the life he'd lived, he'd lived a hard life that had taken a toll on him. And, you know, she basically, uh, she'd run out of steam with on him. him or her? Uh, well, it it taken it on her by default on him. Yeah, yeah. And that, you know. Is this a huge toll on her? And that she didn't miss him is, yeah. is one of the things she said. And she he'd obviously really come, that had come to an end, that relationship. There was no... Uh, way back so he he lived in as you said a beautiful home very comfortable he then sort of had to he was still living in the same area but he was moving around locations um he'd always got a lot of attention out of the documentaries uh but whether it was the type of attention he wanted i mean i think he wanted the te- type of attention that oscar wilde would yes. get he um, wanted to be seen as an artist yeah not as a killer no and i think he did like the attention or crave the attention, but then was always disappointed with the type of attention he got. And then he was on... Tell us about his social media. Well, the social media is a funny thing because he became... um, And people... It's actually funny uh, because I I watched some of the stuff on social media after he died and there's his defenders because, look, he was mistreated by the Gardaí. 
but there's also people saying he was a, well, even if he wasn't convicted of murder, he was a woman beater. And so there was a lot of that debate because he was on social media, a lot of some really weird stuff, um, you know, sending, you could see him, uh, it wasn't even sending DMs to young women, but making comments on young women's uh, photos, What's models. What's sort of young women? Uh, uh, young women like myself. Young women, young ladies like you. Not <laughs> no, not young ladies like yourself. A different type. No. So I mean, we comment on sort of porn stars mm. and saying you look great and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, but not. Yeah. Well, no, look, you're not. So no, not just young young ladies like yourself. Um, and he was obviously then as well. He was doing his poetry readings on live sessions. Yeah. Um, he's begun new relationships. With uh, who? Who? Well, there was Sorry. one woman. There was back one. To this, yeah. Back to this. Yeah. Your theory. Yeah. Well, look, there was. There was that yeah. the guys don't have to do very no, much. No, they don't. He was a celebrity. So he attracted a certain type, you know. So, he, but he, it looked, um, and he was doing his poetry readings and charging a fiver in, I think. And mm. he'd actually launch his own podcast. I don't know if you knew I that. I didn't hear that one. Where is that in the charts? It, it's up there somewhere. I mean, it's there. Like, it's, right. it's out there. But whether, again, you know, there was a lot of people podcasts have been very successful about Ian Bailey, but I don't think his own one about himself yeah. made the same sort of, yeah. the same sort of impact. And obviously then he had, he had suffered a number of heart attacks as soon as he'd been in the hospital. He yeah. was going on Instagram, doing videos about it on TikTok, speaking about his heart problems, which and, and he's entitled to do. And then he passed away this week. And, you know, was that all about experiencing what a fickle thing the media is? You know, I don't know. I you mean, you can be a star one day yeah. and then you're forgotten the next. I mean, it is quite a cruel thing, the media to people. Was he just, you know, when he started making his own media, was it because people had moved on to the next documentary series on Netflix that was... Well, I don't know. I mean, I suppose he felt he could control the narrative on mm. on his own social media, maybe. Um, and he obviously had people who were willing to engage with him and he enjoyed that. Mm. But he had people then trolling him, which he also got in these long, dark holes of responding to trolls and he was going to track down this troll nice. and he gone to the police about this threat and he was offering to meet trolls one on man on man. Sounds and like a lonely person, a lonely existence. Well, it's, you know, as you know yourself, if you if you find yourself fighting with, with anonymous trolls, yeah. you're not, you're doing something wrong in your life. Yes. You know what I mean? Yes. Now, then he obviously passed away and this debate then happens, doesn't it? Um, Senator Maloney, for example, did a really interesting piece actually about how he 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 believed he killed Sophie Tuscan de Plantier. Nick uh, Foster is it? Sorry, mm -hmm. his name. Nick he Foster, yeah. he wrote a piece as well saying he believed he was the killer, and that's the narrative now. Did he do it or not do it? Because obviously, people he was always referred to as the chief suspect. He was convicted in a French court, yeah. so linking him to it a murder was not you know, taboo during his life. But I suppose now that yeah. that's what happens. And if I had a penny for every time somebody asked me, yeah. you know, when I get talking about him or whatever, yeah. and having met him and yeah. dined with him and stuff, yeah. you know, people asking me, what, did you think he killed her? Yeah. And so can I just ask you, do you on. think he killed her? Well, you see, <laughs> I'm not as sure as Nick Foster or yeah. Senna Maloney. Yeah. I've always kind of looked on it that he was really, really weird. And, yeah. you know, 
all those things. But I don't know whether I have a more practical brain or not. But when you actually dig into it, the the facts and, yeah. and the timings of the murder, the motivation was supposed to be that he tried to come on to Sophie and that she'd rejected him. There was some bit of a evidence that he'd worked up on Alfie, the neighbor's garden at mm. some point and would have seen her. But the distancing, the dark of night, the ability to get himself from where he lived in Skull over there to kill her, to get away, to leave no trace of evidence for nobody to see him. It it just wasn't as clear cut as being able to say, yes, I think, he, well, I mean, look, the French courts believed yeah. it was clear cut. I always just had a niggling doubt. Yeah. I had a niggling doubt about it. And that's not to say I don't definitively think yeah. he didn't kill her. But I wouldn't be 100% he did. And if we were in a newsroom and we were looking at a photograph of somebody and you said to me, is it him? And I said to you, I'm not 100%. I'm nearly sure, yeah. but I'm not 100%. We wouldn't use it. No. I mean, I think there's there's a couple of things. Like the police, obviously, the Guardian are conducting another review. Um, they're not looking at anybody else. Yeah. I mean, Ian Bailey constantly tried to push this idea that some sort of hitman was yeah, hired from, from France. France. I think that's utterly farcical. Yeah, I don't it was think utterly there, far. it was like the horse. Yeah, I mean, I think it was. It, there isn't really anybody else to be a suspect. The reality is, I mean, we've just um, done a long piece on on Noel Long, yeah, Beast, the podcast, and you can see um, a, a good guard investigation didn't succeed at the time. But then when it did come come to court 40 years later, the techniques used by the guardies still stood up and helped to convict the man all that, up with all of that passage of time. Unfortunately, the reality is that the guard investigation surrounding Ian Bailey was really, really bad mm. and really is, is hampering the family, really being able to get to that moment that no long... Yeah. That case and, and, and t more than 10 years previous that happened, but sampling that was taken at the time was held, was stored in the Forensic yeah. Science Ireland labs and it was reusable, yeah. you know, 40 years ha later. And the witness investigations were good mm. and all of that stuff. Mm. Like, unfortunately, with Dean Bailey scenario, it, it's been the opposite, hasn't it? Yeah. And I mean, that's it just shows you the importance of, of you know, good guard investigations. And I think that's, so your reality is that people will probably still be talking about Ian Bailey in 10 years because you can never know. Do no, you, you can never know. I mean, if you had a case, you know, if we'll, we'll take it just for yeah. an instant and we'll, we'll come to the end of this podcast yeah. now because I'm sure we're beginning to yeah. bore people. But if you take it for an instant that he did kill her, yeah. right? It's really strange that he lived off the celebrity as such of that and that he put himself into the investigations for all that time afterwards, mm. that he never killed again, that the motivation of that rejection, you know, if that you accept that, if you accept that rejection thing, that he went up there in the middle of the night to get rejected. Well, I mean, I, I actually don't find that un unbelievable. I think... The type of person she was, an arty, mm. you know, French filmmaker, glamorous. I think that would be the type of person that he would be drawn to. Uh, I think he was a violent person to women. Yeah. He could have been drunk. Drink. Yeah, well, he I could think have there been was drunk. taken that night with him. Yeah, he could have drinking. He could have been, he could have acted in, mm. in, in, in a drunken moment. 
and done something. It's not. It's Listen, not, I'm usually the judge and jury here. I'm not usually. I as, mean, if you were to ask me, if I had yeah. to, I I would not say I think he. I don't know enough to say I think he killed her, but I don't think there's anything about him that would rule him out being a killer. That's but my, you never met him. I ne- but I never met him, so mm. I don't know. And I mean, there's mm. there's many people listening to this who probably have know the ins and outs of that case more. But I don't think, in terms of the psychological profile, I I wouldn't rule it out. Yeah, no, I wouldn't rule it out. As I say to yeah. you, I would be nearly sure, but not hundred yeah. percent yeah. sure. Yeah. So that's it. He's gone to his uh, maker anyway, and whoever you believe that to be. Um, yeah, and I mean, he I th- leaves behind. Yeah. So many questions and, you know, the family of Sophie have been given some justice by their own country's courts, but um, I'm sure they're not celebrating. No, they're not. Time. And they've been, they're very, I think they're, they've spoken a number of times in the media in the last few days. And again, you can't help but be struck by their dignity and, and you know, just the, the, the sense in which they speak. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. Research assistant is Claude Amini. If you like this show and love true crime, leave us a review. Or why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe. Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary.